now that should be recording uh my name is tim i'm an alcoholic uh thank you for inviting me patrick and to everyone else for being here slightly more select group than last week because guess what we're talking about some actual steps um that's the hard bit although i think the hard bit is actually step 12 but um but anyway four through eight that's what we're going to be talking about today steps four through eight i'm going to get straight in there um what we've decided in step three is that we're going to turn our wills and our lives over to god fine what does that mean that means i'm going to go through life doing god's will and not my will there are two problems in the way that's two the first one is i'm very attracted to doing my will I form sentences with the word I and want in them. I still do. I still catch myself saying I want. Um, so there's a bit of attachment there and that's not easily yielded up. It's going to take some work. Secondly, um, life isn't all that straightforward and it is not always entirely evident what God's will is and how God's will is to be carried out. So what we need to do is, is regular inventory in order to work out, well, what works and what doesn't work? What beliefs, attitudes, what beliefs, thinking, behavior are in line with God's will and, and which aren't? So that's why I have to do some inventory. Uh, first of all, to detach myself from my own will. And secondly, to understand what's gone wrong so I know what needs to change. Uh, it also, it also uh, prepares me. Uh, if you want to know what a step is for, look at the step that's coming after. And that tells you an awful lot. So step four provides a basis for confession in step five. We'll come to the purpose of that. It provides a basis for uh, what we're going to surrender up in step six and seven, the faulty beliefs thinking and behavior it provides a basis for amends in eight and nine now uh if you've got your little big books there you'll discover that step four starts on the bottom of page 63 and runs to 71 so we've got eight pages now um i've heard people say i'm not going to say who and where but i've heard people say things like um, uh, uh, referring to their step five, they, they say, I'm going to go and read my resentments to my sponsor. <laughs> and they think that the, the, the moral inventory is the list of all their resentments. And I'm going to say something which I'm, I think I've said it before, so I've probably spoiled the surprise. But in my view, just based on my plain understanding of English, the English language, that is, that uh, everything from 73, six, 63, bottom of 63, start of step four, up to page 67, is got nothing to do with the step four. It is a preparation for the step four. Because step four, um, according to the, the short form of the step, is we uh, searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I'm not inventorying myself between 63 and 67. The first question where I'm really inventorying myself is what were my mistakes on page 67? 
if you if you notice that famous table with the famous columns, I'm not doing any moral inventory of me. I'm doing moral inventory of you. <laughs> why? So why is half of the step four on this thing called resentment? And what has that got to do with the moral inventory? What book says is that all forms of spiritual disease stem from resentment. Why? Why is that the case? Why, do, why is resentment such a big deal for me as an alcoholic? Um, a resentful attitude towards the world, it positions me in a particular way. It positions me as the holy innocent surrounded by evil and hostility. I'm fine. It's them you gotta watch out for. Um, it produces an insanely distorted perception of the world. It's thoroughly self-centered. It, it produces a complete inability to adapt and change because it's based on the idea, resentment is based on the idea. There is nothing to see here. Look out there, that's where the problem is. It's out there, it's not me, it's them. Uh, nothing can happen while resentment is in place. And um, sometimes in meetings, people say, oh, I've got a resentment and everyone laughs and we all hear about resentment, like you get a scout's badge for it or something. Um, <laughs> it, it's almost socially acceptable to have them. Uh, but they're a problem because they, they, they get in the way. So the resentment inventory is a preliminary inventory uh, designed to rid me of resentment in order that I, that I can then do the actual inventory, which, part, which starts on page 67. Everything up to 67 is preparations. The real step four starts on, on page 67. Just a quotation about this holy innocence business where uh, the, the, this is a Course in Miracles teacher I'm gonna quote. It's a transcript from one of his, his talks where he says this. Haven't you got a bunch of scripts for everyone around you who you're getting upset about if they don't follow them? That's why you're attracted to them. This person is doing the same to you. That's why you're with them. That's why you can't leave them. You're just like them. You're in denial about your own ego, about your own selfishness, fear, or unconsciousness. Then you have to deny it's there so you can see yourself as being a nice person because everyone gives the appearance of being a nice person. And then you can take the part of you that's not such a nice person and you project it onto the people around you. And then you see your own not nice personness in the people you are close to. And the reason why you can't get away from them is that they're reflecting you back to you. And you know that. That's why it can seem like you're surrounded by people who are just the opposite of the way you think you are, but you can't get away from them for anything. Because a part of you doesn't want to get away from yourself. And they're also doing you the favor of mirroring back to you your own subconscious beliefs about yourself uh, so you can be healed. So he concludes, so if you see yourself as a nice person surrounded by people who have real issues, you have real issues, but you're telling yourself that you don't 
because you're nice. You're the nice one. You're so nice. Your face is just wet with tears about all the injustices that people do to people who are nice. You'd be nice all the time, wouldn't you, if they didn't just make you have to want to get them. I think that's a pretty good description of the mindset of resentment and why it's a problem. I'm not going to talk to anything else about resentment. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of character defects. Resentment is one, but it, it needs to be eliminated first before you can get on to the rest. I, I, there was another talk called How Not to Be Upset, uh, where we discussed um, uh, resentment at, at, at depth. So I'm not going to cover it now. Page 67 questions. Now, you'll remember if you've done a step four, there is a table on page 65 with the I'm resentful at Mr. Brown, Mr. Colonel Plum, whoever else. Uh, and then people say, ah, oh, the fourth column. And sometimes there are fifth columns and sixth columns and all sorts of very elaborate things. It's all very impressive. Page 67 quest, there are, on page 67, there are some questions, which are the first questions in the inventory, um, but they are not a fourth column. Now, I keep, out of force of habit, I keep referring to them as the fourth column. It becomes so automated after years, but it, they're not. Because once you've eliminated your resentment inventory, there is nothing that your first three columns are gone. There's nothing to add it to. It just says, what were my mistakes? It doesn't say, what were my mistakes specifically and exclusively in relation to the people I resented? No, 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 no. What are my mistakes when your whole life? There we go. Um, now, when I'm doing these questions, I do start with the situations I've written resentment inventories about, because those are the most troublesome. They're a great place to start. Why not start there? But once I've asked those questions, and I'm going to come to the questions in a moment, but once I've asked those questions about the 20 situations or so I've written about in the resentment part, uh, I ask those same questions of the other relationships in my life, other categories of people, other areas of my life, my relationship with money, my relationship with retirement planning, how well do I look after my home, education, work, diet, exercise, those sort of, those ought to be four letter words, <laughs> uh, exercise, sleep, Hobbies, service, religion, politics, community, society, the environment, and anything else not covered. If I'm going to do a thorough, thorough moral inventory, I have to do it my whole life, not just the people I'm hacked off about. Um, there are eight questions, and I'm going to cover them briefly, then we're going to talk more about them. What were my mistakes? Where was I selfish? Where was I dishonest? Where was I self-seeking? Where was I frightened? Where was I to blame? What are my faults? What are my wrongs? Now, before we get too deeply into those, uh, 
one's got to think about what the purpose is. The purpose is not write as much as possible. You don't get points in inventory for writing. I remember, I think I mentioned this before, this poor girl that had four ring binders. She'd done the Big Book Awakenings and she had the four ring binders full of material. She was crying. I'd be crying if that was my inventory, I'd tell you. Uh, so you don't you don't get points for 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 the for word count here. So there's eight questions. There are eight ways of coming up one thing, which is the truth. The truth about what? The truth about the things that I am responsible for. What am I responsible for? My beliefs, my thinking, my behaviour. Once I know what is wrong with my beliefs, my thinking and behavior, stop asking questions. You're done now. If I could answer the question, what are my mistakes? 100%, the other seven questions would be redundant because the mistakes include selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, fear, blame, faults and wrongs. The way to consider these eight questions is like you're walking around a statue, looking at the statue from eight different angles, and you're being asked to describe the statue. And each different question is coming at the same statue, me, from a different angle. So you do the other questions do add a little bit. They do produce extra answers. The eight questions, mistakes, I keep it very simple. How was my assessment of the situation wrong? What did I do that I shouldn't have done? What did I fail to do that I should have done? Selfishness. Where did I put me first where I should have put you first? Dishonesty. Where did I lie, conceal, distort? Self-seeking. What was I after? What was my end game? Fear. What was I frightened of? Blame. Uh, uh, blame in particular, where, where did I set the ball rolling? Faults, what are my character defects in this situation? And I use, there are lists of character defects. It, it's useful to have vocabulary for them, but I don't go to town on that. I just, what are the three character defects that really played out in that situation? What are my wrongs? And the wrongs uh, 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 what I did that harmed someone else. We'll come back to that later. Uh, incidentally, there are eight questions in that middle paragraph uh, of page 67 uh, of the big book, in case you are <laughs> looking in, in paths to recovery or something, um, or blueprint for progress, it ain't in there. Um, there are eight questions. The seventh question is faults which gives me my character defects for step seven. The eighth question gives me my harms, my wrongs towards others, which gives me the material for step eight. Funny little coincidence there. And when I've done this, I summarize it. Uh, there's, there's no merit in repeating inventory. If, if I've got five relationships which are very similar, but put them together for the purposes of inventory. Um, I don't think inventory should be like, you know, the opening credits of The Simpsons, where Bart Simpson has a line he has to write over and over and over again on the board. I don't think it's, and I don't think it does any good, really. I don't really understand what, the, some people say it's beneficial if, if, if it helps you, fine, but it doesn't help me. Um, and what I come out with is a very clear picture of what has gone wrong. 
I don't need to fix any of this. I just need to catalog it. I just need to catalog it. And the summary should be relatively brief, just a few pages. Why? Because uh, if you take a standard list of character defects, for instance, the character defect list contained in the St. Augustine prayer book, I'm going to send links later on, so don't worry. Links with instructions on steps for how I do them and, and some other stuff. But if you take that list of character defects, it runs to eight pages. My list of character defects should not be longer than a full catalogue of character defects. If it's longer, there's bloating or repetition or irrelevant detail in there. It needs to be brief. Yeah. Uh, for, just so that the person you're reading your step five to doesn't die of boredom in the middle of it, which can happen. I mean, there, there are medical procedures to resuscitate them if necessary. But just so they don't die of boredom, you might want to write down one of the more interesting examples of each thing. But you don't need to list every single thing you stole. I am a thief is sufficient information and you, you, you name something interesting or big that you stole. You don't need to list every single Cadbury's cream egg. Um, out of this inventory, the page 67 inventory, what you get is a list of fears. One of the questions is, what am I frightened of? That list of fears starts to form the basis for the fear inventory on page 68. So you transfer across the answers from where was I afraid in all of these different areas, put them in one place, um, make sure, get rid of any repetition so it's nice and clean. Uh, and then brainstorm, I, have I missed anything? Um, normally people don't have more than 20 or 30 fears really. If there are more than that, there's repetition and bloating and padding in there. Same people saying the same thing in different ways. You know, you can just say, I'm frightened of what people think of me. You don't need to say, I'm frightened of what Sally thinks of me. I'm frightened of what Susie thinks of me. I'm frightened of what Putin thinks of me. Uh, you don't need to let you just know what I mean. You want to get to the essence of it. And it, it asks a rhetorical question. You can tell Bill doesn't trust you when he asks you a rhetorical question rather than an actual question. He doesn't trust you to get the answer right. So he tells you the answer. He asks a question and then he gives you the answer just before you can get in there and get it wrong, mess it up. He says, we asked ourselves when we were done, we asked ourselves why we had these fears. Rhetorical question. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Now, I do think it does bear a tiny bit of analysis, the fear inventory. Uh, and the way I do it is this, when I'm frightened of something, I'm rarely frightened of the thing itself. I'm usually frightened of the consequences. And it's like a, a, a string of dominoes. One domino hits the next one, which hits the next one, which hits the next one. And eventually the dominoes stop falling. And then you've got to the thing you're really frightened of. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm frightened of being disturbed in my work. Why? I might not complete the work as well or on time. Why does that? Why am I frightened of that? I'm frightened of my clients disapproving of me. Why am I frightened of that? They might stop giving me work. Why am I frightened of that? I wouldn't have any money. Why am I frightened of that? I wouldn't have 
the basic security, basic needs of life wouldn't be met? Or what would people think of me if I'm unemployed and unemployable? Then you really start, you have to go down the line to get to the thing you're really frightened of. Normally, there are thousands of surface fears and then a handful of core of uh, fears underneath. I, I'm sort of hesitant even to say core fear because it sort of makes them sound very grand and there's this sort of great illusion that we're deep somehow and I, I don't think we are particularly. Um, well, I'm not. You might be. I'm not. I'm pretty straightforward. I'm selfish and boring. That's my step five. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Everything else is is commentary on that, but anyway, there are some un, there are some, there are some fears which drive all the rest, and they are in the seven areas of self. Specifically, the five pocketbooks, money, security, the basic needs of life, personal ambitions, and image, pride, and self esteem. Uh, it, it's rarely more complex than that. Um, the solution, now, the, the resentment inventory produces its own solution at the top of page 67, which I won't go into. The page 67 inventory doesn't produce solutions. And we'll come to why, I think. I mean, it's helpful to look back and say, well, maybe I should have done this or maybe I should have done that. But the fear inventory gets right in there with a the solution, which is uh, you have to trust God and that, that there isn't much more to it than that. What does that mean is I can be okay whatever happens. There was a, a reading in an Al-Anon book yesterday, which someone read out in a meeting, was, which was all about how God is in charge of the world. And if you trust God, everything will work out. I don't know, you know, the not all the data are in, but the data that are in so far suggests that not everything does work out. Uh, you know, bad stuff happens because God is not in charge of the world because of human will and laws of nature which God doesn't seem to intervene in in order to prevent suffering. So that can't be my hope. My hope has to be that there's an internal change which enables me to match calamity with serenity uh, by, in any situation, saying, uh, how can I be useful to God? Uh, wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? I need to go back to that line. Bill's rhetorical answer to the question, why are we frightened? Why do we have these fears? The three things that matter, and this is a repetition from an earlier talk, but I'm sorry about that. Um, the three aspects that matter are uh, my identity, who am I? My value, how much am I worth? Um, my purpose, why am I here? If those three things, identity, value, and purpose, are rooted in the material world and my, ident my, my being in the material world, all of those three things are vulnerable. Sometimes perfectly wonderful people are roundly hated by their fellows and peers. It happens. Uh, people's plans, even good plans, are confounded. Just because you're trying to do God's will does not mean that the results will be good and the outcomes will work. Security is an illusion. Control is an illusion. If I'm basing my life on the material world, good luck. You'd have to be psychotic not to be frightened. 
if you believe that all there is is the material world. The only answer then is just block it out and pretend it's not there and say cute little things like God's in charge of everything. But it doesn't wash our, it washes for a bit, but it doesn't wash at four o'clock in the morning when you're 25 years sober. You're too awake to fob yourself off with cheap Pollyanna-isms. There's got to be something deeper. And the deeper thing is that my identity is I'm consciousness, which happens to be residing in this particular physical form. My value is infinite because I exist, as is everyone else's. My purpose is to wake up and help other people wake up. None of those can be interfered with by events of the world. I can be awake, whatever happens. Uh, if you uh, read the autobiographies or biographies of great people who survived very difficult periods of history, you'll discover it's possible to remain useful, cheerful and kind, whatever the circumstances, and be at peace in the most horrific of situations. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of people from um, uh, Simone Weil to, uh, uh, I would say Jacques Lussier, but he's a French jazz pianist. That's completely different. Who am I thinking of? Um, Victor Frankl. <laughs> I don't know how that's connected in my mind. See, my mind doesn't work. Things are connected, which shouldn't be connected. Uh, Victor Frankl, uh, Marx Aurelius, you know, his meditations seem pretty fun. Uh, when you read about what his actual life was like, he's running the Roman Empire, for heaven's sake. And things were not going well <laughs> over there in Budapest, or I think he was around Bud Vienna, Budapest, that sort of area. There were campaigns against the these or the those which weren't going well. Uh, there's got to be some sense of something beyond the physical body. Uh, now to the most distasteful part. I used to go to a, a, a big book study where they would discuss the sex inventory. And if I could arrange to be out of town during one of these weeks, I would, because some people would mistake the fact we were discussing the sex inventory uh, in the big book with that, that they take that to mean, please do your step five <laughs> now during the meeting. People, people reveal most extraordinary and, and, and lurid things during a, a meeting on, on the sex inventory, which, which are perhaps best kept for one-to-one -one or the confession box or something. But in any case, although it's a sex inventory, it's really about intimate relationships. And the questions are quite valid for any close relationships. And I mean, in, in effect, the, the, the inventory is redundant in a sense, because if you've answered the questions on page 67, where was I selfish and, and frightened and what were my mistakes? You've already covered this, frankly. So you can do a little bit of a copy and paste here, but it's zoning in on these relationships in particular, because even people who are perfectly reasonable under other circumstances can be absolute rotters in the bedroom. So, so certainly I could. Um, and the, the, the nine questions of these, where have we been selfish, dishonest, uh, or inconsiderate? Uh, whom had we hurt? So a little bit of step eight coming in there. Uh, did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this down on paper and looked at it. So again, uh, you can group people together. Uh, at sexual health clinics in London, when you attend one, they give you a questionnaire 
and you've got to fill out how many people you've had sex with since your last visit to the clinic. And it's London. Maybe it's different in Shrewsbury or Cork. I don't know. But in London, uh, that the, the, the goes like this. Nought, this is how many sexual partners have you had since the last visit? Nought, one, two, three to five, six to 10, 11 to 20, 21 to 50, 51 to 100, 101 to 1,000, more than 1,000. So, you know, some people have got a lot of time on their hands. Uh, <laughs> if you're being busy in this area, you don't need to write an essay on each one. You can group them. One night stands, two night stands, people in Tenerife. Um, you know, a, 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 a friend of mine in, in uh, not casting any aspersions on Tenerife, but what happens in Tenerife doesn't necessarily stay in Tenerife. Um, a, a friend of mine in AA, um, she, she is a, she, I think she's about 50 years sober now. She is, she, she's a self-professed slag. She says I was an absolute slag heap. And uh, she's completely charming and delightful, but she does say that she was a slag. And she met a very nice gentleman in AA when she was a couple of years sober. And she said to my, she said, I, I spoke to my sponsor and I know we're supposed to be honest, um, but I can't tell him my sexual past. What will he think? And the sponsor said, just tell him you've had three affairs in the past. That's it. Don't go into details. You do not need to tell him the three affairs were with the army, the air force and the Navy. <laughs> Good girl. Uh, so you can summarize, you can what we're after here is the behavior patterns, not we don't need like something like an, you know, Ikea flat pack instructions for how everything fitted together. We're not interested in, in, in the mechanics there. We're interested in moral behavior. Now, the last part of the so-called sex inventory is very interesting. It says, what should we have done instead? We got this down on paper and looked at it. And it, on the basis of this, we draw up a sane and sound ideal. And a sane and sound ideal, you, you can either do beliefs, thinking and behavior or attitudes and actions, or basically how you should look at these situations uh, internally and then how you should behave. And then it's, it does a wonderful thing. It says, in other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. Now, it hasn't told us anywhere else how to handle problems. It sort of slides in on the flank how to solve a problem. How do you solve a problem? You take the situation. Where was I selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Who have I hurt? Have I unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where was I at fault? What should I have done, done instead? Then one resolves to grow towards that solution. Um, so there is a problem-solving paradigm. Uh, what, what's interesting is, is we're now on page 69, which is uh, six pages into step four. We now have a full and adequate answer to all emotional upset at external events, page, top of page 67. We've got a full and adequate answer to all fear, and we've got a paradigm for solving any problem. Six pages in. It's not hidden. <laughs> it's in there. Um, 
and it's kind of entry level stuff, really. Um, one thing on sponsoring people through step four, that the sort of traditional way of doing it is you give, you give the poor bugger their step four instructions and you sort of send them off into the darkness and hope they're going to come back about six months later looking slightly dazed with, you know, clutching a sheaf of papers. I, I don't think this is a good thing to do. You see, you're not just... <laughs> You're not just telling him to do step four. You've got to train him how to do it. Is sometimes you hear sponsors go, oh, sponsors saying, oh, he did a rotten job. It's terrible. Well, of course, it's because you didn't train them. They need to be people need to be trained how to do step four. Um, it's not self-evident. Now the book was written to be self-evident, but it's not because I think about alcoholism. It's perfectly self-evident to anyone who's not an alcoholic or an Al-Anon. But um, I mean, if you see the, the dog's dinner people make of things, even when you do give them clear, plain instructions in, in monosyllables. Uh, so the idea that people can do this on their own is just preposterous. So you have to train them through it and it's tedious. Sorry to any sponsors listening to is, but it's tedious. It is tedious. It's boring. It's repetitive. You say the same thing over and over and again. No, what did he actually do? <laughs> Give me the facts, Sally. Um, he created an atmosphere. Well, what does that mean? What? How did he create the atmosphere? What with a stink bomb, with a whoopee cushion? Did he let off fire? What did he do? Give us anyway. You get the point. I needed training. People need training. So I lead people through the step for, you know, ounce by ounce. So by the time they got to the end of it, they've got a robust step four. Uh, plus, well, they've learned the method. They now have a robust step four. I also get people, you know, at school, they get you to buddy up with people and, you know, practice doing exercises together. I do that. I, I say to sponsees, go and talk to my other sponsees and you can, they can be your step buddies to, to get into the weeds on this. It, some, it really helps to get more than one person looking at this material. Funny thing is, when you do that, no one's ever frightened of a step five because I've already told half of them. I mean, selected people, but oh, London, you know, knows what's going on. Closed mouthed friends, but nonetheless, it takes the sting out of it because there's nothing interesting in there. Let's face it. You know, I've had I, I, I've had thousands of, of people read inventory over the years and, and I, I'm, I've yet I've yet to be entertained. So, you know, there's there's, there's nothing very interesting in there. Uh, but in, in other words, you've got to train people. Uh, get people to work together. If You can't do it on your own the first time. It's too frightening. It's too overwhelming. You need your hand held. It's only the very exceptional who are able to go off, follow the instructions and come back with something robust. It's very, very, maybe one in 20 people can do it. If people have done something else like Landmark Forum, they can do it. I'm not giving Landmark Forum a, 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 a booster. I have absolutely no opinion on it, but I've noticed that people who've done similar things or things with similarities, like so, um, some kind of systematic self-examination where they question their own beliefs, thinking and behavior. If they've done that before, then they can follow the instructions. If this is literally the first time you've done, you've examined yourself critically, I don't mean critically in the sense of beating yourself up, but questioning yourself, challenging yourself. 
Uh, so I, I spent decades building cases and covering my tracks. It wasn't going to be instant looking at what the truth was. This is why we need to do this with other people. So by the time someone has done their step four with me, they've already in effect done their step five um, because they've conveyed everything to another person, to me and to you know, a couple of step brothers. Um, uh, I, there's, there's a group in London where the, the tr tradition, whatever that means, is you do your step five for several hours every Sunday for a year. Um, I, I don't do that. I don't do that. Um, <clears throat> someone said to a friend of mine, uh, will you hear my step five? And he said, I have 40 minutes next Tuesday. And the person said, but I have 10 hours of material. And my friend said, well, you'll have to find someone with 10 hours of time then. Um, step five is the exact nature of my wrongs. And it breaks those down into two elements, twists of character, dark crannies of the past. In other words, defects of character. What are my defects? List them, give an example of each dark crannies of the past, things I'm particularly embarrassed and ashamed of, and rotten things that happened to me that I just need to tell someone about. Dark crannies works both ways. 40 minutes to an hour. It's amazing how much you can say in 40 minutes. I do a quarterly review, once a quarter, and it's very, very dense with detail and I can get, I could, I could, you can read out a couple of thousand words in 10 minutes. You know, how many thousand words do your character defects run to? So, so if all the detail has been gone through and raked over and all of these situations from the past have been reframed and calmed down by the reframing, Step five is left as a very, very simple exercise of let's gather together all of the past problems in one place so we can walk around them in an hour. This is supposed to be a deflating experience, not an inflating experience, which is why a step five, which lasts several hours every Sunday for a year, I'm skeptical about. I don't know how deflation can take place in that way. Um, one of the problems I had with psychotherapy, I have no opinion on psychotherapy as a, uh, in a formally as an AA member, I have no opinion on psychotherapy. One of my problems with it as a punter was every time I went in with one ball of wool, I felt as I came out with two. Whatever problems I presented, we seemed to uncover all sorts of stuff underneath, which seemed even worse. And I thought, when is this going to stop? I thought this was supposed to solve my problems. Um, the great thing about a step five, my first step five took about, I think it took about an hour. I can't imagine it took, it was only a few pieces of paper. At the end of it, I thought, my God, I really have written down everything of importance on there. That's it. That is the reason for my unhappiness. Material, which takes less than an hour to read out, it deflates. And the person said to me, the person was fine with me afterwards. They didn't... Um, 
that, that, that they weren't unwilling to spend time with me. I was I'm just an ordinary person with an ordinary past and an ordinary set of problems. So it's fine. Um, so, and I don't do sort of great big formal ceremonies with step five. Um, very straightforward. I go home afterwards. I consider, have I missed anything? If I miss anything, I go and tell the person that I did the step five with. Um, friend of mine, uh, acquaintance really, we haven't slept together. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, <laughs> friend of mine uh, had a sponsee, sponsee did a step five. And my friend said to him, so go and take the book down from the shelf for an hour and consider what you've done. So he did it exactly by the book. Bloke said, oh, there was, came back after an hour, said there was something. And the sponsor said, what? He said, I owe someone a third of a million dollars. So, you know, things can slip through. The, it's easy to overlook things. <laughs> it's easy to fail to mention a thing or two. Sometimes you have to say everything else and be put on the spot with that hour to say the, the one thing which really does matter. Uh, step six, what it says in the big book, if we can answer to our satisfaction, otherwise we, we, we've done the first five steps to the best of our ability, then we can look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. And I have to say, I've tried all sorts of elaborate procedures uh, for step six. And I, and I know there's a very famous book on step six and seven, isn't there? I'm not going to mention it, but there is one. And you read the 12 and 12 and... You know, the folklore in AA is, well, Bill, you know, he just forgot to mention all the other stuff, but he fleshed it out in the 12 and 12. And you look at other books on the steps and unlike the essays, this is true in other fellowships, I'm not going to name names, but the essay on each step is the same length. Why? Why would each step be the same size? If you have an engine, all the parts are not the same size. Just because a part is vital does not mean it's big. And doesn't mean you could, just because a part is small does not mean you can take it out and the machine doesn't work. But step six doesn't have to be big. There's nothing in the laws of nature to say that each step has to be the same size. So I let step six be as small as it is in the, in the uh Big book. Same with step, step seven. It is not to diminish their importance. It's simply to recognize there's a very simple proposition in step six. Uh, do I want what I've currently been getting out of life or do I want a completely different life? Very straightforward question. It's like moving house. Are you going to stay in your current house or are you going to move? Um, Either I'm living life based on self or I'm living life based on God. There isn't, it's either one or the other in principle. Now self will creep back, but, but in terms of the fundamental basis for life, it's one or the other. Pick one. You cannot pick and choose effectively between the two. 
So this is why I don't sort of lovingly, you know, grieve over each character defect before sort of writing it on a piece of paper and letting it float down a river or something. I don't know. I'm just asking a very, very basic question. Do I want my life to change? Frankly, I'm going to be a bit mischievous. If you get to the end of step five and you're not utterly horrified and completely willing, I don't know what to say to you, frankly. I, I, what do you do then? You, you missed something. So it needs to be asked. The question needs to be asked. But, for, you know, um, I don't have a huge amount of patience for, for dithering on step six. And step seven, I, I think I had a motto would be, well, get on with it then. You've decided your life needs to change fundamentally. Well, get on with it. Put the house on the market. Well, there's a, an analogy which I find very helpful about four, five, six, and seven. Four is like filling in. Now, British tax returns are straightforward, but American tax returns are very, very elaborate. And, and they're very expensive to put together because you need a tax accountant and it. They take forever. Everyone complains about them. Anyway, thick. So step four is like that. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a performance producing it. Uh, you, so you write your tax return, step four. You discuss it with your tax accountant and rejig a few things. That's your step five. Step six, you put your tax return in an envelope. You write the address of the IRS and put a stamp on it. Step seven, you take it to the post office and post it. Now, if you don't put it in an envelope, it won't get there. If you don't post it, it won't get there. These are not steps which are in which are dispensable. You can't scoot over them. But you don't want to you don't want to make a performance out of them either. They're very straightforward. How do you take step seven? Well, humbly, let's look at humbly first. It does say to do this humbly. So I've got to understand what humbly is. It's seeing myself as I really am. Not a bad person, but full of wacky ideas which don't work, which produce rotten thinking and rotten behavior. There we go. Humbly, what's humbly is seeing things as they are. And um, someone once told me the difference between humility and humiliation. Humility is when you voluntarily jump down to ground level. Humiliation is when you're pushed. The destination is the same. You're at ground level. It's just you want to opt for humility because it's more graceful and less painful than waiting for life to push you. Just quietly go down those little stairs. And humility is a choice. Humiliation isn't. Humiliation is what happens when you avoid humility for too long, then you'll be humiliated. Pride comes before a fall. Humbly asked him to remove our defects of character. Now, hopefully, what I'm about to say, if, if, you're, if you're pinching pennies, clipping coupons, and don't want to shell out for a book on step six and seven, this might save you a few bob. And you can buy one day at a time in Al-Anon with the money saved. That's definitely worth it. How do you take step seven? It says, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. God, please remove my shortcomings. You're now done. You've now completed step seven. You've asked. God does not need to be begged repeatedly. If I'm asking, to, in Al-Anon, we learn that asking twice is nagging. 
because I don't trust that the message has got through. If it's said sincerely, I don't need to keep repeating it. Uh, it now, this does raise the question, does that mean all the character defects are gone? No. When you file your tax return and send it to the IRS, you then have to pay your taxes. If you have a lot of taxes to pay, it will take a while to pay them. So just because the follow through is not instant does not mean that the process is not working and is not entirely effective. Um, the one thing I do want to say though about um, the, the actual removal of defects, um, <clears throat> my belief with the first nine steps is the, the, if you imagine having breathing difficulties and you go to the doctors, step three, uh, you have lots of investigations done, so blood tests and x-rays, chest x-ray. Step four, you have a concilium and you discuss those with the doctors from different disciplines. Step five, uh, they ask you to fill out the consent form. Do you want to have surgery? Yes, step six. Step seven is, is being wheeled into the operate, operating theater. Then they open up your chest uh, and they really look at what is inside. Uh, that's step eight. Step eight is simply a, a more precise look at my behavior than in step four, more meticulous. And step nine is the removal process of what's wrong. And if you've got breathing problems, it could be, if it's a very, very serious protracted breathing problems, could be a growth. Now, you might not have caused the growth. It might be irritants that you inhaled, but it's now your growth it needs to be dealt with. And it will produce, certain growths will produce a pleural effusion, this accumulation of fluid in the lining of the lungs, which causes breathing difficulties. And what they will do, if you have that, a family member had this, they drain the pleural effusion. And that's like forgiveness. Uh, when you forgive, you can breathe again. You've got room to move. So when they drained the pleural effusion, he could breathe again. It didn't remove the tumor. What is the what was the tumor in this case, the, 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 the growth? It's all the harm I've done to other people. Now, other people might have provoked me, that's like the irritant, but if I retaliated or learned from other people's bad behavior, that's the thing. The reason I'm resentful of others is because of unmade amends of my own which I'm covering up, so I'm projecting outwards. So if I really want to stop the breathing difficulties, I have the growth has to be removed, which is step, which is steps eight and nine, or specifically step nine. Now, <clears throat> when you've completed the surgery, uh, where do they wheel you? The recovery room. Uh, I don't believe recovery starts until the problem has been removed. What is the problem? unmade amends, which gives rise to resentment and all the other spiritual disease flows from that. Recovery does not start until the last amend is completed. I didn't start to, I didn't start to heal until the amends were completed. I was going around in circles for years. There was some improvement, but I was managing my problems as opposed to transcending them. 
So the healing process, I believe, begins with the completion of forgiveness and, and amends. Now, just like with mowing a lawn, you need to keep mowing it. But nonetheless, it was that clearing the decks once opens up new vistas, which are hitherto invisible to the naked eye. The fourth dimension becomes visible only when the blockages to seeing it are removed. And this, unfortunately, the money has to be paid back. There's no way around that. The apologies have to be made, every single one or alternative measures if the people can't be found. I'm gonna come back to step eight in a moment. How do defects get removed? Now, the, the, the misunderstanding, there's a lot of misunderstanding about defects, which stems from misunderstanding about what they actually are. They're not like, they themselves are not like stains or, or uh, growth sorts of lumps they're not locatable inside a defect is not located inside me a defect is a false belief or a false thinking or, or an unhelpful thinking pattern or an unhelpful behavior pattern attitudes and actions and thought is a type of action so let's go with attitudes and actions what what does it mean to have a defect removed, what it really means is that I no longer subscribe to the attitude. I no longer act out in the particular way. A defect is a path I walk down. So the removal involves walking down a different path. What is the different path? Service in step 12, the preparation for which is in step 11, and the maintenance of which is in step 10. If I'm on the right path, if I'm doing the right thing with the right attitude, there is no defect, it is gone. Now it doesn't mean that I can't make a mistake and reactivate a false belief. I can't, it doesn't mean I can't reactivate the wrong behavior. So I do, I absolutely believe in the perfect removal of character defects if, if a person is doing the right thing and is doing so cheerfully and kindly, they have been perfect in that moment, for that period, they're perfectly relieved of all character defects. I, I, I suspect I may be, I'm not a psychologist, I suspect there's a sort of contamination of the notion of original sin, which is affecting people's perception of character defects. Oh, you never get rid of them. I, I don't know what that means. It's as though they're as though they somehow sort of belong to you permanently. Um, you know, if someone has I, I thieved and I don't anymore, I haven't thieved for a very long time. Am I still a thief? I don't think I am. I don't think I have theft as one of my character defects, but I don't do it. It's the same with the other ones. If you do it, you you have the character defect whilst you're doing it, but it's not a possession. It's not a limb, it's not an organ, it's not part of me, it's a thing that I do. And I am not the things that I do, I am not the beliefs that I'm toying with in my mind. Uh, just to, to round this off, I was going to do steps four to eight. I think step nine is possibly a different topic. I, I don't know if I'm 
going to be invited back after this, but uh, step nine might be a topic for a future week. But step eight, let's look at this very simply. So in a, the big book says you've already done step eight, it's in your step four. But if your step four is like most people, it's on hundreds of bits of paper, the harms, the wrongs to others are scattered all over the place, probably poorly analysed. Um, uh, it needs a little bit of work, frankly. Um, the big book most aa members were were uh, men of the world in their 40s and 50s they tended to be higher than average earners people who'd had a reasonable career behind them they had some competence and some knowledge of the world uh, i mean i i couldn't find my ass with both hands when i got sober i i i i i had no idea of reality and truth i, I needed to be I didn't know the difference between right and wrong in laws, but I simply was unaware that lots of my behavior was inappropriate. So step eight is going to need some work for most people. Some people get it instantly. They understand how they affect others. Most people in my experience don't. So I, divide, I, I look at it like this. First column, what did I do? The facts. What did I do that I shouldn't have done? What did I fail to do that I should have done? What did I say that I shouldn't have said? What did I fail to say that I should have said? Column two, what should I have done instead? Now, sometimes we upset people um, because, well, I'll give you an example. I'm an examiner. Uh, I examine someone, they failed their master's course and they were very upset with me. Just because they're upset with me does not mean I harmed them. What did I do? I failed Barbara. Um, I, well, her paper was rotten. It needed a 40%. So I gave it 40%. She failed. What should I have done instead? I should have failed her. I would have been, it would have been a gross dereliction of my duty as a university examiner to not to pass her, just to avoid her being upset. So it's only a harm, it's, it's only potentially a harm if what I did is different than what I should have done. It's amazing how many things, like breaking up with people. I broke up with Susan, column two. Well, maybe you should have broken up with her. Should you have broken up with her? Yes, absolutely. Well, we might look at how you did it, but you don't need to apologize to someone for doing the right thing. I'm only going around in step nine, making amends where I've done something wrong. So I've got to establish that it was wrong to start with. Uh, as I say, it's not always obvious to, to everyone. And then who suffered and how? And I get super specific. All you need to do is put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, how would you like it? I'm just going to finish up, Patrick. Got one minute to go. Um, how did I harm them? Physical injury, damage to or theft of property, monetary loss, deprivation of time. The next one is my favorite, interference, intrusion, and nuisance. Uh, unnecessary emotional suffering. Emotions, by the way, are part of life. There's nothing wrong with people feeling bad. It's unnecessary emotional suffering, which is the problem. So just because someone has a feeling does not mean I have to run around making amends. It's unnecessary emotional suffering because of bad, real bad behavior. Uh, harm to relationships with third parties, reputational harm. Uh, sometimes I do a small thing, but the relationship with the individual is ruptured. 
until the amend is made. And there's underlying spiritual harm, enmeshment harms people, a failure to help where I should harm them, misdirection, and anything which reinforces a sense of separation and darkness and the, rea the ultimate reality in the material world. Spiritual harm is very hard to pin down. Uh, but once I've done that, I've got a list. I've got a clear idea of who I'm going to approach, what I'm going to say to whom. So that's the end of step eight. And I'm going to turn it back over to you, Patrick. Thanks a million, Tim. And absolutely, you will always be welcome back here. So we look forward to hearing more of continuation of these wonderful workshops you're doing for us and so appreciate it. And um, so, okay, so the, we go to Q&A now. You can ask your question uh, by voice or raised hand, uh, or you just send him a, 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 in the chat, you know, a message, because it will be recorded. So just so you know, just want everybody to know. Also, we're going to try something uh, tonight. We have breakout rooms available. Vicky is in charge of those. And uh, should you wish to find the sponsor, the, uh, we have uh, our female sponsorship coordinator, Jules, our male sponsorship coordinator, Aaron, are both here. So you can just send your request to Vicky. You can go into a breakout room right now, or you can hang out till after the meeting and uh, join one of our coordinators, find out about our uh, sponsorship WhatsApp group or how to find a sponsor among our group. We have lists of names of people willing to sponsor or be step guides. We have a long list of names. So um, with that, I'll turn it back over to Tim. Thank you. And keep the mess. The, oh, if you have asked a question, just try to keep it to a minute or so, just so we can get them in. Thank you. Thank you. This might be very short, but there are no questions so far. Uh, but if you'd like to raise a hand or, or pop any questions in, in the chat, I'll just wait for some to come through. So, Danny, would you like to come in? Hi, yeah, thank you so much. I love listening to your workshops, and I hope you keep coming back. Um, I was wondering, you had said, you'd mentioned earlier, and I'll, I'll listen to this again, but I'm wondering if you could kind of expand on the three, I forget what they were, actually, how you'd categorize them, identity, value, and purpose. And then you said something like identity is consciousness, value is infinite something and then purpose is helping others wake up in terms of like recovery or can you expand on those at all? Thanks. Yeah so so and this is there are lots of answers to fear people cut this cake in different ways and people find different approaches and whatever work whatever helps it helps fine but the way I look at it is my identity is I'm consciousness um I'm not tied to my physical body. I'm, I use, my physical body is used by my consciousness to communicate with other people. Identity, value, infinite, just like everyone else's purpose, wake up and help other people wake up. So uh, Lynn, would you like to come in? Oh, yeah, thank you. I'm so sorry that I'm off camera. I have a very good reason. You don't want to know. Okay, so thank you so much. I especially liked when kind of at the beginning you talked about, I was like, you said exactly what I think we, I kind of drift through life sometimes with about the holy innocent surrounded by evil. That was perfect. Um, you know, all this stuff going on in the world and somehow I... I think that I'm, it just makes me holier than now, really. 
But um, I was wondering a couple of things. I, I, I followed the one link you put and I just want to make sure that the page I got to had a lot of questions on it and I didn't have time to research more, but I, I'm very interested in getting you, you outlined the eight questions. I, I have a new sponsee that's on this right now. You outlined the eight questions and then you kind of broke down a little bit into each of those questions. What, what was behind yeah. the question and, and where could I find that and anything else with the fourth step that you have worked on? I don't know if it's somewhere in that link on that page or something, but I didn't quite see it. Um, yeah. So on the right, on the right hand side of thanks, Lynn. So on the right hand side of that page, um, there are links to uh, some basic instructions on each of the steps. Um, there, there's if you for, if you scoot around, there's more there's more stuff buried in there as well. But the basic nuts and bolts uh, of of how to to use the big book to go through the steps are all on the site that I gave the link to, which is simply what I'm currently pretty much what I'm currently doing with people. So it's not even fixed in time. I just want to say one thing about the origin of the set aside prayer because it's it, its origin is instructive on all sorts of things. So the story is Don P in, in Denver, Colorado, was sponsoring Joe H. And Joe H at that point had worked for many years in treatment centers, but was, but was about seven or eight minutes sober and knew everything because he'd worked in treatment centers. And uh, Don said, this is how the story goes, Don said, um, uh, you know enough to kill yourself and others. So I think what you should do is set aside everything you think you know, blah, 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 in order to have a new experience. So he just an off-the-cuff comment, which Joe then wrote down and turned into a prayer. And then it got sort of set in stone. Um, and it, as always happens with these spiritual things, it got set in stone. Um, there's a, a, a certain, I, I won't name it, a certain gentleman who does a lot of talking traditionally will will uh, preface his uh, uh, version of, of the set aside prayer. I, I'm, it is what it is, but that's it. That's its origin. But the point is that I, I don't think these things should become set in stone. And, and Don P was was rather uh, scathing is the wrong word, but um, I think it raised an eyebrow that for what for him was a comment which served the moment should be then turned into a, some kind of eternal template. So and it's the same with any materials that I give sponsees or, or put on, on, a, on this blog or that blog. It's just how things, it's just what I'm currently doing, what I currently currently think. There is nothing, there's nothing fixed. I'm just one AA member. There are lots of other AA members. Everyone does this differently. I have sponsored a number of people and uh, they then adapt what I've shown them and take their sponsees through in different ways. No one sponsors people exactly the way I sponsor them, no one. And that's exactly as it should be. Um, this is why I think there are so many people in AA and so so many um, sponsors. Uh, Jake, would you like to come in? Thank you. Yes, thanks, Tim. Um, when you were talking about fear earlier, um, you gave a very broad level, and uh, especially for people who are have spent many years in sobriety. But what I found many times with sponsees is they have difficulty finding that spot where 
and even myself, uh, finding that spot with what God would have me be or have me do about this fear, besides have courage and trust and faith. And for me personally, um, a lot of times, having grown through the program, I relax and take it easy and let go of the struggle and allow the right answer to come when it's supposed to come. But when someone's crafting out a fourth step inventory and they're trying to move forward, um, it's not always about relax and let it easy and trust and allow the time to come. And is the answer just trust and allow it to come when it comes? Or I'm just, I have a hard time figuring out how to do that final portion of the fear inventory with new people. Okay, that's a good question. Um, one way of doing it is to say in each situation in my life, I'm after two things. I'm after what to do, knowledge of God's will for me, what to do, and then the spirit in which to do it. And so you can make a list of one can make a list of one's problem areas. So now Dave Fredrickson came up with this, Dave F. Um, uh, step two proposition exercise. I think it's him or, him and Mark H came up with this step two proposition exercise. God is everything or God is nothing from the big book. Where you take an area where you're frightened and you say, well, what would God have me be and what would God have me do? Now the do in any situation Frankly, most of the time, people do know what to do. Um, you know, in your relationship with your mother, don't criticize her. Call her once a week. Ask her, don't tell her the truth about what's really going on in your life. She doesn't want to know. She just wants to know you're okay. Um, when they say, how are you? They're not really asking. Um, you know, one knows what to do. And if one doesn't, one can ask a grown-up what to do. Later on, the traditions help one play nicely with other people and the concepts help one work nicely with other people and get effective, efficient and harmonious results. But until then, the right action is usually plain. I give people the exercise. If a sponsee came to you and said, what, what should I do in this situation? What would you tell them? And what I specifically say is you have to pretend your sponsee isn't very bright. So you're going to have to spell it out really clearly, no ambiguity, nuts and bolts, exactly what should this person do. And I don't think I've ever given that exercise to a sponsee and not have them perfectly able to set out for someone else what the right thing to do in a situation is. Occasionally, there are absolute corkers which you need to get in there and adjust. But basically ask a grown-up. Uh, in terms of how to be in any situation, I don't think you can go wrong with patient, tolerant, kind, and loving. So patience is about pausing and not reacting, I think. This is my understanding. Tolerance is about uh, yanking the weeds only out of my own yard. Uh, being kind is taking a charitable view of people when there's misbehavior or strangeness and love are uh, acting in people's best interests. So not sentiment. Um, am I going to say the controversial thing? I am. Okay, here it comes. Um, in Al-Anon, 
as part of the official blurb. It also, you know, the uh, we love, you know, we love you and the love we have in our hearts for you and all of that. And at the end of some meetings, I say, can anyone put their hands up or put a note in the chat so they're available to sponsor others? And sometimes two in a hundred people do. Now, maybe lots of these others are not in a position where they're able to sponsor yet. But love is, Brian used to say to me, love is an action. It's not, it's not a feeling, it's not a sentiment. Uh, my friend Laurie in Al-Anon, she says, love does not cure alcoholism. It doesn't stop alcoholism. Uh, love in the sense of sentiment and even doing things. There's, there's something more than just love is necessary. Uh, it's it's really it's going to be action. It's going to be action. So uh, those four things: patience, tolerance, kindness, and an acting in someone's interests. It's the acting in someone's interests. That side of love is the one that really counts. Um, one related story. This is such an important uh, point. This, this, this I think it is. Uh, story from many years ago that Maureen would tell about when she first came to meetings, people would come up to her and say, oh, we look at to love you till you could love yourself. And you were so glad you're here and keep coming back. And then they'd sort of disappear in a cloud of chiffon and lanthric and you'd never see him again. And this rather sort of grumpy woman came, sat down next to her and said, Maureen, did you know you're dying of alcoholism? Do you want to do something about it? I'll show you what to do about it. That's real love, is where you, you take your literal time and give it to someone. So it's not, it's not squishy, it's, it, it's action. Uh, and so if one, doesn't, if one doesn't know what to do, patience, tolerance, kindness, and love, that, that goes uh, that goes. Down. That takes that takes you through the first five to ten years. <laughs> After that, come back, ask again. Um, Girija, would you like to tell us what your question is? Uh, hi, Jim. Thanks for the talk. Uh, actually, I want to ask a solution for uh, resentment. Can you share everything? And also, how to increase the tolerance level? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so the, the question of, of resentment and uh, tolerance, if I, the line wasn't very good if I understood you correctly. Um, resentment, top of page 67, pray the prayer until it goes. Uh, note the qualification until it goes. At some point, you get so bored of saying the prayer, you drop the resentment, you don't want to say the rotten prayer anymore. <laughs> um, uh, Tolerance. If you want a good story on tolerance, read the book. I'm not religious, particularly well, I'm a little bit, but that's between me and me. Um, but the book of Jonah has is has got a good parable about tolerance. The last last chapter of the book of Jonah. Uh, Paul, would you like to come in? Thank you, Tim. Once again, you really are able to cut through it. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to listen to you. So. Um, my question is about uh, defects of character, and my sponsor certainly uh, 
you know, he doesn't shy away from using that. I attend a meeting with him and his other sponsees and his sponsor once a week at least. And that's kind of cool. Um, and it's out of that way, out of those kind of meetings where I've heard, you know, this whole language, which I think is quite relevant to defects of character, which is a phrase that some people have a quite a strong adverse reaction to, um, is this notion of, well, I have a broken brain. And I, I, I find that helpful because uh, it recognizes the possibility or it, it touches on the possibility that I, I have delusions in my thinking. I'm not seeing reality truly as it is. So I guess my question simply is, because I've heard others talk about it, well, you know, it's, as you said, it's behaviors ultimately, but it, or I've also heard them referred to as bad habits that you're just trying to get rid of. Uh, um, or, yeah. So is there any, any other insight you can offer around, you know, how important it is to really, I mean, to me, it's a little bit of calling a spade a spade and using quite strong language to both call it for what it is and then also taking strong action to get rid of the defects. Yeah, I think I understand your, your, your question. Um, yeah, so, so, so it's no good just looking at the behavior because the behavior is coming from somewhere. The behavior does not occur in a vacuum. So yes, the behavior has to change. And, and if push comes to shove, um, whatever your state, you know, I think I'm, I'm morally obliged to act well, however I feel. Clancy always used to say, act better than you feel. I think that's right. But one has to look uh, at what the underlying beliefs and attitudes, particularly the attachments and the personal ambitions and the, the values. We, page 64, we cannot fool ourselves about values. So ultimately it comes down to values. What do I, what is the most important thing? If the most important thing in my day, staying close to God and performing his work well, and I have no other values, then I'm gonna be fine. Um, I'm raised an internal eyebrow slightly at the notion of, um, broken brain. I think there are bro there are certainly broke there, there are certainly beliefs which are unhelpful if they go unchallenged and are reinforced by endless preoccupied thinking for years they become very difficult to shift. Um, but I think one has to make a philosophical decision. Do I believe that my consciousness and my personality is just a sort of random emanation of my body? So I don't really exist as a person. I'm just a bunch of chemicals that happens to think it's alive. And that's a philosophical position that some people take. It's not one I find attractive. If that is the case, um, uh, I, I don't know how you can carry on living, frankly, if you believe you're simply chemicals and electrical signals. Why? Why, why bother? Especially if other people don't think they are and you're hurting them. It's doesn't make any sense to me. The other way around, the other way around, um, I think it's very clear from, uh, I might go into the science of this, that if, if different, if a person learns how to believe, think and act differently, this is reflected in the long term in changes in brain activity. 
neurons are literally reabsorbed and then repurposed to do other things. When people's, people lose a faculty like eyesight, um, changes occur in the brain to enable their other senses to compensate for that. Um, now, it's not instant and some things uh, are slow to change and some things may never go altogether, but I don't have any hope whatsoever. I, I think one's got to plump down on the side of, uh, uh, I have agency over the course of my life. Now it's not easy, it's not quick, it's not straightforward. But if it's, if it's everyone else's fault, I might as well jump off a bridge now. Because my body, the, the thing about the body and, and even the brain is it's sim to me, I may be wrong on this, it's simply an elaborate projection to place responsibility other than with me, the consciousness that is me. Oh, it's my brain which is making me do this. Now, uh, you know, I'm someone that suffered for years with, with what, what are now referred to as intrusive thoughts. Um, uh, they had a different term for it in the 1980s. I'll tell you, that wasn't called that. Then. Bloody bonkers he is. Um, that's called intrusive thoughts. Uh, and you know, I don't mean to be glib, but I do mean to be glib about it. But, um, uh, it, but I don't want to diminish it. It's very, it's very distressing, but something can be done about it. But it takes, it takes a lot of practice. It takes some training and it, it takes a while. But it can be done. Um, a, a friend of mine uh, has got kids with, with uh, ADHD and they've learned to, to, to live differently, to work around it. Uh, so just because something's a diagnosis doesn't mean that there aren't behavioral changes and, and changes in belief and thinking that can't accompany it. Uh, you know, these things are multifactorial, as they say. Now I'm gonna look at the uh, little, little chat boxes and questions there. Um, can you say more about how the transformational growth doesn't really happen until all your amends are complete? Uh, yeah, so it's a controversial view, but it, it, it stacks up with my experience and, and with uh, people I've sponsored as well. Um, there are what are sometimes called holy cows or sacred cows. So elements of a person's psychology, this was true for me, elements of my psychology, which appeared completely untouched by the program and the steps and the fellowship and everything, until, until I completed the amends and all sorts of things drained away. And I find that again, that when I go back through the steps, things which are stuck fast, are loosened and rinsed away. Uh, the person you want to read about all of this, uh, there's a, a AA member died with over 62 years of, of sobriety called Paul Martin. I'm just getting the link up. Uh, and he writes very, very well about this, about the, the effectiveness of the completion of amends in enabling people to overcome problems which are quite intractable. 
I'll put the link in the chat now. So that's uh, to a folder with those in. Uh, let me see. How often, how long on average do you spend taking someone through the steps as little time as possible, as little time as I can get away with? Um, so I've got a life to live as well. So you know, we try and get, get through it quickly. It's up to them. Um, most people dither around. Uh, I don't know why. I When I was 16 years sober, I, I, I went through the steps probably for the first time properly. I'd had hacks at the steps many times. I had said I'd been through the steps many times, but I'd never completed every single last amend satisfactorily. So I'd never been through the steps. I was 16 years sober. I got through it in about six weeks from right from the beginning through to the end of step nine. I've seen a couple, I've seen a few other people do that. Um, it, it, it's a, it, to get through it very quickly, it requires two things. It requires willingness and the ability to think rationally to a certain extent. A lot of people are in a catch-22 that reason is not attainable until there's some degree of spiritual recovery. So you're sort of trapped in it and it, it can be, it, you, you, you have, it's like a sort of three-legged race that what the spiritual leg moves forward and then the, the rational leg. And through the course of the steps, the, the blocks start to go and then boom, then they're really motoring. But we'll only start to motor really after step nine. Um, I'd say if people are very diligent, somewhere between six weeks, and also it depends on how many amends. If there are like 500 amends, it can take a while to get through those. Um, anywhere between six weeks and six months. I don't think it needs to take more than six months if people are diligent. Uh, let's see if there's anything else there. Um, I don't think we have any other questions, so I'm going to hand that back to uh, to you, Patrick. Thanks, Tim. And if you want, we can end the recording there. And uh... Yeah, I'll do that now. Okay, thank you. Thanks a million, Tim.